Well, good morning. I invite you to turn now to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, a familiar passage to many of you. Today I'm beginning a relatively brief series on the attributes of God. And there's a very practical reason for this. Every wrong that we do, every sort of unhelpful anxiety or fear or pride or anger comes in that moment from either being unaware of or forgetting who God is. And so in our times together for the next few weeks, I want us to be reminded once again of who our God is. And so we find this remarkable meeting between God and Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great side, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bless you as the source of wisdom and knowledge and truth. And we ask now that you would grant to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. 
Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. For we know you only if you reveal yourself to us that you may be known. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. At the outside of this sermon series on the attributes of God, I want us just to consider very quickly and briefly some of the challenges that go with knowing God at all. Uh, Knowing God is much like knowing another human person. J.I. Packer tells us in that wonderful book, Knowing God, it was very helpful to me many years ago. But think about it like this. The person who says, I know this person, means that he knows that person's history, and he also knows how this person is going to respond in particular circumstances, how this person's going to behave in particular circumstances. And when you think about that, that requires a great deal of time and shared experiences and personal interaction, and that's the rub. Because you see, people cover up. People keep secrets. Uh, People don't easily divulge what is in their hearts. Packer says, you may spend months and years doing things in the company of another person and still say at the end of that time, I don't really know him at all. And so we see that our ability uh, to know another person depends at the end of the day more on them than it does on us. Our knowing this person is more the result of them permitting us to get to know them than it is on our attempts to get to know them. So imagine now for a moment that that you're going to meet someone that you feel is really above you, really elevated above you perhaps in social status or perhaps in personal giftedness or accomplishments or intellect. Uh, We might think of a head of state, a famous entertainer, a a champion athlete, a best-selling author, And the more you feel your inferiority and the more you feel that person's superiority, the more you feel that it's your place simply to respond to this person respectfully. You let this person take the initiative to you. Uh, You'd like to get to know this person, uh, this elevated person, but you know that decision is theirs and not yours. So... If this person's just kind of courteous and cool and standoffish and distrustful, you might be disappointed. But you really can't complain because you have no claim at all on their friendship. But if instead this person takes you into their confidence and they opens up their heart to you and they involve you in their projects and they share the things on their hearts. You feel enormously privileged and this special relationship with this special person brightens your whole outlook on life. You have something now to live for. Well, that's a picture of what is involved in knowing God. As God said through the prophet, let him that glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Knowing God is a relationship that is calculated to thrill our hearts, to fill a person with satisfaction and hope and an outlook that stretches into eternity. And we see all of that in a small way in this personal interaction that God has with Moses at the burning bush. If you and I would know God, he must take the initiative. 
He's the one who must come to us and call to us within our hearts. Otherwise, he remains unknown. Now, the backstory, as we know, for this encounter with God occurs earlier in Exodus chapters 1 and 2, where we learn that this is a really hard time for the people of Israel. They are slaves at this point in Egypt, and for hundreds of years they have been suffering under Pharaoh's lash, uh, making bricks for his great building projects. The people are groaning under their sufferings, but now their cries for help have come up to the throne of God. He cares for his people. The time for Israel's deliverance has come, but ah, the answer to their prayers is far away now in the wilderness where Moses is tending sheep for his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Moses is now in the vicinity of Mount Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula. Horeb will become known as the mountain of God because this is the mountain where God will meet with Moses and give him the Ten Commandments. And now as we come to our passage, I think we can imagine how this particular day has begun, just like any other day. Nothing particularly unusual about this day, but you never know, do you? You never know when God might take the initiative and intrude himself into your affairs. Moses is out in the wilderness, he's tending sheep, he's minding his own business, and then something unusual catches his eye. Moses has been tending sheep at this point for 40 years, and Moses has seen it all. He knows sheep, he knows the wilderness, his work is routine, nothing much shocks Moses anymore, but what he sees is something new. At first, it looks like just an ordinary bush that is burning, which in itself is highly unusual because what could have caused it? There's no storm, there's no lightning, there's no apparent reason for the fire. And then Moses notices something even more remarkable. There's a fire in this bush, but the bush itself is not being consumed. It's not burning. Well, that's a mind bender, as we say. How can such a thing even be possible? So Moses goes over to investigate, and that is when things get really hairy, because as he does so, a voice calls to him from out of this bush, Moses, Moses, this is a personal fire. Uh, God is taking the initiative. God is revealing himself to Moses. God is calling Moses into a relationship with himself. God is opening himself up at this point to Moses. And God uses a lot of different ways to call people into a relationship with himself. The particular way that God chooses is ideally suited for the unique plan that he has for us. It's a great mistake, my friends, to be impressed with another person's experience and then go out and try to get that for yourself. You see, God deals with us as uniquely loved persons. But in Moses' unique experience, I think we see some of the universal, general ways God uses when he comes knocking on the doors of our lives and maybe even overturns everything. And the first thing that we see here is our God is the seeking God. Our God is the seeking God. I say that because it's not Moses who is seeking God here so much as it's God who is seeking Moses. In this case, he's using a burning bush, but God uses a lot of different things to act as burning bushes to direct our attention to him. 
For example, uh, maybe it's a positive quality that we see in a believer. I remember it's been some time ago, the late Tim Keller relating, and it may have been in a sermon, I can't remember any longer, the story of a woman who worked at a new TV network in New York City. Uh, She really blew it one day. And what she did could have gotten her fired. But then her boss accepted the blame himself. Her supervisor, her boss, took the blame in her place. Well, naturally, she was grateful, but she was deeply stunned. Uh, So she asked him why, and he just tried to pass it off as no big deal, but she persisted. And so he finally said, okay, I'm a Christian. Uh, And she didn't know what that had to do with it. And so he said this, he says, well, in other religions, God says do this and do that, but in Christianity, God actually came in human flesh in Jesus and he took the blame for us. My Savior took the blame for me. So the least I can do is take some of the blame for others. Well, that was a burning bush moment for that woman She had always thought of Christians as haters, but God got her attention through that moment because, and so God, because God was seeking her, she became a seeker of him. Now for me, the burning bush moment came when I found myself at the scene of a fatal accident. I I was in my second year at the University of Wyoming. I was majoring in geology, and then quite unexpectedly, I was confronted by the spectacle of a young person like myself lying on the ground in a great deal of pain, dying. And it was a very ugly scene, and there was nothing that either I or anyone else present could do to alleviate this young man's suffering. What a relief when the ambulance finally arrived and took him to the hospital. But I read in the Sunday paper the next day, just below the fold, that he had died on the way to the hospital. And that was an eye-opening time for me. Um, It made me contemplate the brevity of life. Life is short, my friends, and shorter for some of us than for others. But it also made me reflect on how absolutely empty my life was. I was having a lot of fun, but I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't fulfilled. My life was empty. There was really nothing worth living for or dying for. But that was a burning bush moment for me. God was seeking me, and he made me a seeker of him. For others, a burning bush is an overwhelming trouble. A lot of people think they're pretty capable of handling their own lives, and then trouble strikes. They realize they aren't Lord of all, at all. But here's our point. When people come to know God, it's only because God has first taken the initiative to set them seeking him. And, and what did God use to call Moses to himself that has importance to us this morning? One thing was a divine delay. 
A divine delay, uh, God confronted Moses when his life at this point was at a dead end. Again, in Exodus, chapters 1 and 2 tell us why. Originally, Moses had been born an Israelite, but through unique circumstances, he had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter as a baby and raised in the royal court. And there he got a top-flight education. He became a rising prince in Egypt. Oh, he had friends in high places. He had a bright future. And then he discovered he was an Israelite. And his people were being enslaved and oppressed. And God put into Moses' heart at that point this desire uh, to deliver them. But Moses also had a sense that he had what it took to do so. So so now Moses became an activist. And then then one day he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite in a fit of rage. He murdered the Egyptian. He thought the people of Israel would recognize him as their great deliverer, but they didn't. And then when Pharaoh found out about the murder, Moses had to flee for his life and But that was 40 years ago. That was 40 years ago when Moses thought he was a somebody. But now he knows he's a nobody. But the bright spot in all of this is this. Feeling you're a nobody is necessary for truly knowing God. And God may use delays as a way of preparing us to really get to know him. Here's a basic gospel truth. You are never going to be of any real use to God until he brings you to an end of yourself. Until he does, you can't even become a Christian. I mean, to have a relationship with God, you have to come to an end of yourself. That's what repentance involves. Repentance involves saying, I'm lost. I can't get myself out of this jam that I've created. All I can do is throw myself upon God's mercy. And something else, you have to come to an end of yourself to embark on God's plan for you until you feel, I have nothing of real use to give without him. You don't have the self-knowledge. You lack the humility. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the dependence on God necessary to be used by him. God the seeker uses divine delays to bring us to this point so that we can really know him and be useful to him. And something else, we see a divine disruption. In Moses' case, we see a disruption because you see God's sense of timing isn't Moses' sense of timing. It's just, my friends, it's never convenient for God to personally meet with us. It just never is. We want so much to be in control. But God comes intruding himself into our comfortable, predictable existence saying, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who has things under control. And now come and follow me and learn what it means to trust in me, to really trust in me. In Moses' case, God disrupts Moses' life by calling him now to be Israel's deliverer, something he aspired to do 40 years before. But Moses doesn't want to do that now. 
God has turned his life completely upside down. God has disrupted everything. God's timing and God's designs for our lives, and let's say it this way, for our church may cause disruption. But here's the silver lining in all of it. God's disruptions always make things better and not worse. God opens our eyes to see that he is greater and bigger and better than we ever imagined. You see, God has the long view. He wants to make our individual lives, he wants to make our corporate life together as a church family count for eternity. Our God is a seeking God. And then our God is the illuminating God. Why do I say that? Because in this event, God confronts Moses as a fire. And as he does so, God is illuminating Moses' mind in, in, in what's involved in, in knowing him and, and in what and who he is. And in this process of illumination, God is using, we see, uh, that, that he is using, we see that there are two basic ways of experiencing God. In this illuminating experience, there are two basic ways of experiencing God. And the first is this. We may experience God as divine awareness. Divine awareness. Before the burning bush incident, Moses believed in God. I mean, after all, his father in Midian was a priest of Midian. I mean, Moses had a God awareness. But while Moses had this God awareness, he'd never really encountered God. Never really encountered God, at least not in a very personal way. The God of the Bible is not a God you just acknowledge the existence of. He's not a God that you just kind of believe in in some sort of general way. The God of the Bible is like fire. And why is he like fire? Because you see, fire assaults your senses. You see the brightness, you feel the heat, you, you smell the smoke, you hear the crackle. You don't just believe in fire in some general way, you experience fire. And you see, in that fire, God is bringing Moses to a divine awareness, from a divine awareness to now to a divine encounter. That's the second way we experience God. We experience him in a personal, direct way. The burning bush is the point where God brings Moses from mental assent and belief in him to a real-life encounter with him, a life-changing. A life changes the way you can tell you've moved from mental belief in God to a real encounter with God. You see, it's one thing to believe that people are sinful, but it's another thing entirely to, to know that you are a sinner. To, to feel that deeply in your, in your soul and to hate it in yourself and to want to be done with it. I've known a lot of people who have acknowledged the reality of human sinfulness and depravity and brokenness, but they haven't really faced up to it in themselves. And you can tell it by the way they live their lives and by what they say. Here's something to think about. It's just a small thing, but the person who has been moved from having a divine awareness to a divine encounter avoids saying things like this. I can't believe I did that. A person avoids saying those kinds of things. They know their sin all too well. 
it wasn't too long ago that I really lost it with someone I love. I mean, people who know me and were present with me said things like, I don't remember when I've ever seen you that mad. And so what did I do? Well, I apologized. I asked for forgiveness. I sought reconciliation with tears. I thought I'd lost the relationship, and I'm grateful this person is so kind, and they sincerely forgave me. But I didn't go to that person saying, I can't believe I did that. I hated how I had acted. I was shocked by how I had acted. Thankfully, um, those with me were too because I don't conduct myself in that way as a rule. But you see, I also know that but by the grace of God, I'm capable of far worse. You see, God has moved me beyond thinking of my sin as just having a bad day. Sin is a reality I'm deeply aware of in myself and something else. It's, it's one thing to believe that Jesus died for us and it's another thing to have that fact revolutionize the way you live and affect the way you see everything. And God took Moses from a mental ascent to a life-changing encounter. Moses personally knew this sin in that moment. And, and when he was confronted with this consuming fire of God's holiness, he hid his eyes in fear. But Moses also experienced God graciously calling him into friendship with himself, granting him forgiveness, giving him a relationship with himself that he did not deserve. And that changed him. His relationship with God came to mean more to him than anything else. And Moses prayed that others would encounter God's undeserved love in this way. In Psalm 90, a psalm attributed to Moses, he prays, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Someone who knew the illumination of God's fiery presence, moving him from divine awareness to a divine encounter was Blaise Pascal, Pascal was a brilliant French philosopher in the 17th century. Pascal believed in God. Pascal wrote about God. Pascal understood truths about God. But then by his own testimony, he had an experience one night with God as a fire. And we know this because he wrote this account down and it was so precious to him that he would actually sew it into the coat uh, that he was wearing at the time. You can look this up online. But here's just a bit of what he wrote. In the year of grace, 1654 on Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past, half past 12. Fire, he says. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. Joy, 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 tears of joy. He writes, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent.
Has God illumined our beings in some way with his fiery presence? Has he moved us from a divine awareness to a divine personal encounter with him? The seeking God, the illuminating God, finally, our God is the saving God. What's truly wonderful is how God calls Moses personally to himself by name. Moses. Moses. The God who created all things by his power and glory. The God who is infinitely above us and left to ourselves would be completely unknowable, stoops at this point in his grace to divulge himself to Moses, to initiate friendship with Moses. And God still divulges himself in personal friendships with sinners. What is salvation? Salvation is knowing God. That's what salvation involves. It involves knowing God because of his gracious initiative and intrusion of himself into our lives. And there are two qualities of God we know in salvation that shine in this fiery bush episode. And the first is this, God self-sufficient. God self-sufficient. One thing about ordinary fire is it's dependent. Fire is dependent on fuel. No fuel, no fire, but the fire in the bush is a fire of a different sort, isn't it? It's supernatural. This bush isn't being consumed because the fire has its own being and power. Uh, this fire is an ideal representation of God, and it explains God's cryptic answer to Moses' question. What shall I say is the name of the God who sent me? And God says, I am who, am I, who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, I always am. I always will be. What I reveal myself to be today is what I always will be because I do not change. This is what... Theologians call the aseity of God, and by that they mean the absolute self-sufficiency of God. The fire that represents God in his name, I am, displays the self-existence of God. God depends on nothing. Instead, everything in creation depends on God. Now, this aseity of God has a very practical application to our lives, and it's a very wonderful practical application to our lives because think of it this way. Why did God create us at all? Why did God create us at all? I mean, if God is all sufficient, if he is supremely happy in himself, then why did he create us? It's not because he needed anything from us. No, you see, God created us not to get from us, but instead to give to us. He created us to know him. He created us to share in his love. He created us to realize the satisfying purpose he created us for. You see, God created us because God loves to give what is best to his people. 
and then God is all satisfied. That's the second quality, I think, that shines in this divine encounter. Only God fully satisfies our empty, thirsty, hungry souls. But God is holy, and you and I are sinful. How can we enjoy soul-satisfying intimacy with such a holy God? Must God always be holding us out from himself at arm's length as he does with Moses saying, I love you, but don't get too close. How is it that you and I can know the embrace of God's love? How can we know him satisfying our hearts with himself and his love? Yes, because we can, because you see, Jesus is the great I am in human flesh. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus claimed to be I am, and on one of those occasions he claimed, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why did the great I am become flesh? To die for our sin, to bear the judgment of God for what we deserve, to take the blame for us. By his death, Jesus has satisfied the consuming fire of God's wrath directed against our sin. And he has brought us everlastingly into the arms of God's love. Oh, my friend, cease your striving, cease all your worrying, rest in the Lord, satisfy yourself with his all-sufficiency, working altogether for your good. Martin Luther apparently used to say to his good friend Philip, Philip Melanchthon, who was a terrible warrior, let Philip cease to rule the world. Luther was saying, Philip, do you really think you must control the world? That's why you're so anxious. Be still and know God. Satisfy yourself in his all-sufficiency. Let us pray. Almighty God, we, we praise you for what we see in this passage, that you're not only a great, eternal, and glorious God, but you are a personal God. And you created us so that we might know you, so that our hearts might be satisfied in our relationship with you, so that our relationship with you might give us something to really live for. It might become the greatest thing in our lives. Father, we realize that we cannot know you unless you have taken the initiative. And we're very grateful that there are these kinds of burning bush episodes that you use to draw our attention to you and make us seekers after you. Oh, Father, I pray for anyone here right now who you have made a seeker after you that does not know you. May this be the day of their salvation. May they know the warm embrace of your love as you come to them in the name of Jesus, glorying in how it is that you set your son to die for their sin, to bring them everlastingly to yourself. As we have said repeatedly in this service, we have a relationship with you, not because of our qualifications, not because of our works, not because of our good things or our bad things, but solely according to your grace and the gift of your Son to receive what we deserve. 
Lord, we rest in that Savior with thanks. We rest in his wounds and blood as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And Father, I would also pray that that as our church moves through this period of transition to our next permanent senior minister, that you would help us to go deeper and deeper in knowing you. Father, on a personal level, we are useless to you. As a, on a corporate level, as a church, we are useless unless you bring us to an end of ourselves. And we look to you for mercy. Father, we come to you now. We come to your throne of grace. We ask that you would satisfy us with your presence. May it be a consuming fire within our hearts. We offer our prayers to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.